All right, we're ready to start, everyone. I've got 12.30, so I'm going to honor your time. I love it. This is like the first time in a while that we've run out of food. This is great. That's a great problem to have. Let's keep, uh, let's keep doing that. It's also a good uh, incentive to get here early. <laughs> We're in Numbers 15 today. Numbers 14 ended with the rebellion of the people, God's punishment for that generation, but not His punishment of everyone. In other words, not revoking the salvation of everyone, but definitely the experience of salvation of that uh, rebellious generation. And then the people as a whole tried to go back and say, oh, well, okay, God, we'll, we'll follow you. We were just kidding. And God says, no, you've passed the point of no return. If you go up and try to take the land now, you're going to be doomed. And they did anyway, again in their presumption, and they were destroyed um, as a people beat back all the way to this place called Hormo or destruction. So that's how it ends. Now then chapter 15 comes along. And chapter 15 has puzzled some interpreters. Because they look at it and they go, wait a minute, we had this narrative that's been going on for three chapters, two or three chapters, and it seems to be flowing well. And then all of a sudden there are these random laws in chapter 15. It doesn't make any sense. And then the action picks up after that. So what you find in more... Some commentators will say things like, well, this text was clearly edited together by a later redactor, and this was uh, evidence of multiple hands at work, and we uh, don't know why this passage, but it was clumsily placed here by a later scribal post-exilic author or compiler or something like that. You hear this in, in a number of uh, commentaries, uh, by, especially by non-evangelical uh, commentators, and what that basically says is, we don't know why this chapter's here, so it clearly must done, not have been done by God or by Moses or by an original author. It must be the work of muddled human thinking. Maybe, but that just seems really, one, it seems lazy. Uh, two, it seems like, well, since we don't understand it, we're just going to say that if we can't understand it, no one can understand it. It must be a mistake. That's the kind of scholarship you need to be aware of when you're reading commentaries and and articles by biblical scholars because it's easy to slip in assumptions if you have a PhD behind your name and people don't question those assumptions. I mean, we do it in everything and people do it all the time, you know, like people are an expert in one thing and so they pass some assumptions under the radar that people assume and, and, and buy into it because of the person's authority. <clears throat> and it's always helpful, no matter where somebody's coming from, no matter how learned they are, to step back and go, wait a minute, tell me again the reasons that you're holding to this view. Tell me again why this doesn't make sense to you. Tell me again why I should be believing what you're saying. That's healthy skepticism. That's not, um, that's not dogmatic skepticism. Dogmatic skepticism is like, well, you can't know. Who are you? You have no authority. You're fake news. Like That's dogmatic skepticism <laughs> that we don't necessarily want to embrace. Rather, we want to say, okay, I don't trust what you're saying yet, but I also know enough to know I don't know everything. So tell me why you're saying it. That's healthy skepticism. There's a difference between the two. And a lot of times, biblical scholars will approach Scripture, especially the Old Testament, with the second rather than the first. Or <clears throat> they'll smuggle in some assumptions about the text, about authorship, about its reliability, trustworthiness, etc. So I mention that because we do go through text chapter by chapter, verse by verse here, and I'm hoping that you are 
looking into other resources, that you are reading from other scholars and, and other commentators and pastors and teachers because it's nothing's a one-man show. It's super dangerous when you start building your theology around one person's teaching. Super dangerous. Very, very dangerous. And that absolutely applies here. If this study is all you get from the book of Numbers, you are cheating yourself of solid biblical learning. What I'm doing in this study is introducing you and guiding you through the book, hopefully encouraging you to then go elsewhere and continue to learn and research on your own. So that's the goal, at least. So then, back to 15. What do we do with this? What do we do with Numbers 15? Well, first of all, we look at it and we ask the question, okay, let's say that this really is God's inspired Scripture. <laughs> Crazy notion. What, what reason could He have for putting this section here? That's the question we should be asking when reading Numbers. Because we've just read this cycle of rebellion. We've just read about God's mercy to His people, but at the same time, His punishment to the guilty as in keeping with Exodus when he revealed his name, Yahweh, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving to the thousands, but not leaving the guilty unpunished, punishing the sins of the fathers on the children for the second and third generation, or third and fourth generation. Um, we're seeing that played out in the last few chapters. Now in Numbers 15, after this rebellion, it, it, let's ask what this could possibly have to do with anything. So let's read it. Numbers 15, this is right after the Israelites got beat down all the way to Hormah. And, and now, this is why it, it jars so many scholars. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, After you enter the land I am giving you as a home, and you present to the Lord offerings made by fire, from the herd or the flock, as an aroma pleasing to the Lord, whether burnt offerings or sacrifices, for special vows or freewill offerings or festival offerings, when the one who brings his offering shall present to the Lord a grain offering, a, excuse me, a grain offering of a tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with a quarter hen of olive oil. With each lamb for the burnt offering of the sacrifice, prepare a quarter hen of wine as a drink offering. Just, we don't really measure things in hens today, but conveniently a hen is about a gallon. So when you read a hen, think a milk jug. So this is what he's saying. Uh, with each lamb for the burnt offering or the sacrifice, prepare a quarter of a hen. What would that be? A quart? A pint? I don't know my standard cooking measurements, but you can look it up. There's an app for it, I'm sure. Prepare a quarter of a hen of wine as a drink offering. With a ram, so that was with a lamb. With a ram, prepare a grain offering. Two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with a third of a hen of olive oil and a third of a hen of wine as a drink offering. Offer it as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. When you prepare a young bull as a burnt offering or a sacrifice for a special vow or a fellowship offering to the Lord, bring with the bull a grain offering of three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with half a hen of oil. Also bring half a hen of wine as a drink offering. It will be an offering made by fire and aroma pleasing to the Lord. Each bull or ram, each lamb or young goat is to be prepared in this manner. Do this for each one for as many as you prepare. Okay, now this is right after their rebellion. We're back in Leviticus. Those of you that were here last year and we did Leviticus around January, we were reading through these types of things. So it's like he's, he's re why, why after their rebellion is God talking once again about these offerings by fire that we looked at? These aren't whole burnt offerings necessarily. Um, they aren't purification offerings. They're the ones that are celebratory, that are festive. 
That's why it says, or when you celebrate a vow, a free will vow, or a festival occasion. These are those offerings you give that you celebrate and you eat. These are the offerings that become your food and food for the priests. Portions burned on the altar. Priests take a portion. The rest is eaten by the offerer family. Celebrating. So these are celebratory things. So why would that be right after this abysmal chapter of Israel's trying to refusing the land at first, then trying to take the land without God and getting beat back? Why would this be included here? To me, what jumps out, and a number of commentators, good solid numbers commentators, pick this up. They're saying, look how God started. When you get into the land that I promised you for your home or as a dwelling, literally it says, for your dwellings. So this is, this is showing the covenant is not destroyed. The covenant that started in Exodus 19 was ratified in Exodus 19, ratified in Exodus 34, laid out in the offerings of Leviticus chapters 1-7. through It's still on. And you're going to do it when you get into the land. This is God reassuring His people after this abysmal defeat. Hey, show's not over. You are not going to get into the land now, but you are going to get into the land. And when you do, you're going to celebrate. And you're going to celebrate and you're going to give gifts from your flocks and your herds and your offerings. There's going to be oil. There's going to be wine. There's going to be livestock. These are the promises that God made. And He's saying with this in a very covenantal way, this thing's still on. This thing is still on. At the same time, that mercy is being extended. At the same time, that judgment is being rendered. Because he says, when you come into the land, he's talking not to these people. He's telling these people what's going to happen for their children. So for 40 years, this group is going to wander in the wilderness, slowly dying off, dying off, dying off, knowing that God's going to be faithful to their children and that they, through their rebellion, forfeited that blessing. That they will not get to offer these sacrifices to God. But their children will. The children that they were so worried about when they rebelled against Moses, saying, oh, we, we, they're going to take our children as plunder. God's saying, no, your children are going to offer sacrifices and offerings and there's going to be celebration, festivals, gallons of oil and wine. It's going to be good. Because I'm good God and I promise this to Israel and my plans will happen. But it's up to you whether you're part of that plan happening or not. The show's going to go on. Your obedience and faithfulness determines whether you experience it or whether you die in the desert. And so through, even through this section, it makes a lot of sense. I disagree with the scholars who see this as just evidence of a clumsy redactor's hand. I think that's nonsense. I think they're not giving enough credit to the author of the text or to ancient Hebrew narrative ability. This is a perfect place for God to reintroduce the themes of Exodus and Leviticus, which He's doing in this section. He goes on then, verse 13, everyone who's native-born must do these things in this way when he brings an offering made by fire as an aroma pleasing to the Lord. That's like every Israelite. For the generations to come, whenever an alien or anyone else living among you presents an offering made by fire as an aroma pleasing to the Lord, he must do exactly as you do. Why would he think, why would anybody think after the events of the last two chapters that aliens among them, and that word alien translated as immigrant, because that's a much better way to think about it. Why would he think that immigrants, non-Israelites, would be offering such 
sacrifices to God? What precedent would we have for non-Israelites being faithful to the covenant? The very last chapter. Who was the only spy that stood up and said, hey, guys, we can take the land? Caleb. Was Caleb an Israelite? No. He was a Kenizzite. He was from the people of Kenaz. He was a Gentile dog. That's what his name literally means, dog. The Hebrew word for dog is Caleb. So, of course, this is a perfect time to make that clear. Yes, just as now, Caleb and Joshua were the two faithful spies. One Israelite, one Kenizzite joined to Israel in the tribe of Judah. That's what Israel's going to be moving forward. There are going to be people who come into Israel who were not native-born Israelites who enter into the covenant people of God. There's going to be a whole book named after one of them. You know it as the book of Ruth. There are going to be people who come into because what was the purpose from the beginning? What did God promise Abraham? Genesis 15. In you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. This idea that Israel was, a, was, was an ethnically pure entity from the beginning is nonsense. It was not. It never has been. And God's never wanted it to be. It was religiously pure. It was covenantally pure, or at least it was supposed to be, <clears throat> but not ethnically. Ethnicity and who your parents are have no bearing on your standing in the kingdom of God. And that's not just a New Testament thing. That's an Old Testament thing. Israel was always to be a welcomer to the immigrant, to the exile, to the slaves. Remember when we were going through Exodus and the laws, and one of the laws was if a runaway slave comes and seeks shelter, do not send him back to his master. And another law was if you kidnap someone and take them and sell them into slavery, you will be put to death. Israel was always intended to be a light to the nations that would draw the nations to knowledge of God, including those that would join themselves to Israel. And the prophets, even after the Babylonian exile, the prophets look to a new time of a new covenant where God's going to do what this one should have done, but it didn't because of their disobedience. And he's going to see things like Egypt and Assyria being joined to Israel. Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel all prophesy at, at, at some point in the future, Gentiles will be joined together with Israel as one people. And that's just a mind-blowing concept that got forgotten in this 400 years between the Old Testament and the appearance of Jesus. So when Jesus reaches out to the Gentiles, when Jesus is a light to the nations, when He stops and talks to the woman at the well who's um, a Samaritan, or He talks to the woman who's a, a Syrophoenician woman and makes the reference to, well, you know, don't take the food to the children and give it to the dogs, which is a particular pun on the word dog, which is what was Gentiles were referred to, in those, incidences, in those incidents, Jesus isn't doing anything new. He's doing what Israel had, called, had been called to do from the beginning, being a light to the nations, taking Torah to the Gentiles, the knowledge of God. <clears throat> so that's all, and it's, it's prefigured here all the, way, well, all the way back in Genesis, but again here in Numbers. He goes on to say, verse 15, the community is to have the same rules for you and for the immigrant living among you. This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. You and the immigrant shall be the same before the Lord. The same laws and regulations will apply to both of you, both you and the immigrant living among you. That's worth meditating on in and of itself. Just God's attitude towards the outsider, even the covenant outsider, those who are coming in to join to the covenant. 
Now, what does this do with politics today? Not touching that one. You got to work that out on your own. This needs to inform, and this is not the only passage. You got to look at a whole as you do when you try to apply scripture to any ethical issue, but it should inform how we approach the situation. Our starting point should be how do we treat people? in the image of God. Then from there you move on to the policy decisions and what's wise and what's secure, role of government, protection versus openness, all that stuff. Those are, and, and people will disagree on those all day. But the starting point shouldn't be disagreed on. The starting point is God's always desired to reach the nations. And His people have always been called to be a bridge, a light, a, a, a beacon to the nations. And that happens even in the Old Testament. So the Lord said to Moses, verse 17, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you enter the land in which I am taking you, and you eat the food of the land, present a portion as an offering to the Lord. Present a cake from the first of your ground meal. Not like a birthday cake. This is like a ring of dough that they would throw in the oven and make. So cake is kind of a misnomer in modern English because I think of like this. Like, hmm, cake. But it's not that. This is like daily staple food. When you're making your daily bread, Present a portion as an offering to the Lord. Present a cake from the first of your ground meal and present it as an offering from the threshing floor. Throughout the generations to come, you are to give this offering to the Lord from the first of your ground meal. Even the normal meals in Israel are to be covenant reminders. You're preparing bread for your family. The first part of it, take that first part of it, make it a special offering to God, then make the rest for your family. Even daily meals, and those of you who have been coming here for a while, you've heard me say this before, meals are holy and sacred in Scripture. There's no coincidence that we do this Bible study around a shared meal. It's no coincidence that Jesus chose a shared meal to illustrate the purpose of His death and resurrection. It's no coincidence that when God made the covenant with Israel on Mount Sinai, fire, smoke, God right there, God and the 70 elders of Israel had a covenant meal together. Exodus 18 or 19. Meals are, meals are so holy and sacred. And God's saying that over and over to His people. Every meal will be a covenant reminder. Every time you're in the kitchen, you're baking cookies, you're worshiping Me. You're making a kale salad because you're super healthy, fine. You're still worshiping Me. Everything is a gift for Me, so everything is part of worship. Then he switches gears, because remember the theme of last chapter. Mercy, forgiveness, punishment. They're all held up. They're not pitted against each other. So this next section, 22. Now, if you unintentionally fail to keep any of these commands the Lord gave Moses, any of the Lord's commands to you through Him from the day the Lord gave them and continuing through the generations to come. In other words, from Exodus 19 forward. And if this is done unintentionally, without the community being aware of it, that's very distinctive uh, in distinction to last chapter. The rebellion was done openly and all of the community was aware of it. And all of the community, with a few exceptions, were embracing it. So he is specifically contrasting what happened in the last chapter with the type of sins that he's about to discuss and how those are atoned for. If this is done unintentionally without the community being aware of it, then the whole community is to offer a young bull for a burnt offering as an aroma pleasing to the Lord, along with its prescribed grain offering and drink offering, and a male goat for a sin offering. This was Leviticus 1 through 7. Check the video or the podcast if you want 
to know what those particular offerings symbolize. The priest is to make atonement for the whole Israelite community and they'll be forgiven. For it was not intentional and they have brought to the Lord for their wrong an offering made by fire and a sin offering. The whole Israelite community and the immigrants living among them will be forgiven because all the people were involved in the unintentional wrong. All the people were involved in the unintentional wrong. Even though they didn't know about it. Even though they didn't mean to. They didn't know that some among them were living sinfully. And so the whole community as a whole will not be punished for something that the whole community as a whole didn't know about. And as soon as they found out about it, they went to make atonement through this portable Mount Sinai we have, which is the tabernacle. So God's giving, there's accountability. Yes, the whole nation is accountable for this, but the nation realizing it acts in a way that says, this is not who we are. We don't want this. And they make the atonement. There's forgiveness there. There's covering is the word for atonement. Kippur, covering over. God says, I'll cover this iniquity. If it's unintentional in the community. But if just one person sins unintentionally, this is individual stuff now, he must bring a year-old female goat for a sin offering. The priest is to make atonement before the Lord for the one who erred by sinning unintentionally. When atonement has been made for him, he'll be forgiven. Exactly. One in the same law applies to everyone who sins unintentionally, whether he is native-born Israelite or an immigrant. So again, something's unintentional. What's an unintentional sin? Well, God said... Don't touch a dead body. You accidentally come upon a grave or a, a, a corpse. God says, don't eat unclean food. You're at someone's house. They serve something. You realize that it had been prepared in an unclean manner. You make atonement for it. You, you didn't mean to do those sins. These are, these are the unintentional types of mistakes in keeping the letter of the law. And, and what God's saying is, I'm not going to hold that against you if you do what I've told you to do, which is use this tabernacle and sacrificial system and priesthood in order to maintain the holiness that's violated even by your unintentional acts. This is the system God's put in place. He's reassuring His people, I'm still with you. And even this unintentional uncleanness, even in the sins of omission uh, that are done accidentally or offhandedly or non, uh, just in the heat of the moment, whatever, there's forgiveness for those. But, verse 30, anyone who sins defiantly, and defiantly is how the NIV translates, anyone who sins with uplifted hand. Uplifted hand, is usually your right hand actually, <clears throat> raising it and saying, this is how you'd swear an oath, this is how you'd declare something, is a way of being emphatic. You're raising your hand like, I'm doing this with full knowledge of what I'm doing. I'm doing it with an uplifted hand. That's what it means. It's defi I'm defying the gods is where it comes from. <clears throat> so, anyone who sins with uplifted hand, whether immigrant or uh, native-born or immigrant, blasphemes the Lord. And that person must be cut off from his people. Because he has despised the Lord's Word and has broken His commands. That person must surely be cut off. His guilt remains on him. Or his iniquity is the word, avon, remains on him. So, in the Old Testament, there was no sacrifice you could offer for intentional, brazen sin. None. It was considered blasphemy. And we know what Jesus has said about blasphemy. It's in that category of the unforgivable sin. Why? 
Well, somebody who sins with a high hand is sinning in the face of God and only God can offer that forgiveness. So they are shoving their hand in the face of God and cutting themselves off from forgiveness because He's the only one who would forgive them. He's the one who they're defying in the first place. In other words, there's nowhere else you can go to be forgiven other than God. And He's the one that you're putting it in His face. That's why it can't be forgiven. Anytime somebody sins and is contrite and heartbroken over it and seeks forgiveness, that is, by definition, not sinning with a high hand. That is having a broken heart. That is being contrite. That is going to God in repentance, which is something that somebody who's high-handedly sinning, defiantly sinning, doesn't do. Defiant sin is sinning and saying, I don't even want your forgiveness because I don't care about you. That's the sin that can't be forgiven because the person won't let it be forgiven. That's why blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says that all sins can be forgiven except this one. The Holy Spirit is the one that convicts and reproves and convinces and moves someone to repentance. If you are directly rejecting the Holy Spirit, which is what blasphemy is, and saying this that I'm looking at, this this, this movement of the Spirit, whatever, or that I'm feeling, I'm rejecting it. It's from the devil. It's from I don't want it. Whatever. It's like you're cutting your own lifeline and then wondering why you drift off into space. That's the idea of this unrepentant or unforgivable sins. And it was in the Old Covenant as well. So people that rebelled, we just saw an example in the last chapter. The people that rebelled did it high-handedly and defiantly. And even when God says, okay, now don't go, they still chose to go and try to take the land without Him. Twice, they defied God and sinned against Him. They were cut off. They were judged by God. Sometimes being cut off is judged directly by God. Sometimes it's being given a capital punishment. Sometimes it's having your entire family line erased from the memory of God's people. Having your name literally scrubbed from the book of registry of the town. These are ways that you're cut off. And now, in 32, it's almost as if right after verse 31 you could put, now for example, dot, dot, dot. In fact, I wrote that in my Bible. For example... You want an example of this? Here's an example. And then it tells this narrative that always gets read by itself, but absolutely must be read in the context of chapters 14 and 15. This passage by itself makes no sense and paints God as horribly barbaric if it's not read in context of the covenant and in particularly Numbers 15 14 and 15. So it shifts right to verse 32. While the Israelites were in the desert, in other words, while they're there, this is going on, a man was found gathering wood on the Sabbath. Uh, the verb gathering is to gather or to heap up. And it's, it's, it's not a common word for gather. There's another word for gather that's more common. This is a more like technical work occupation word. It's like going around and making gathering your heap of wood. There's some, some have said lexico, lexicons say that it derives from the verb or the word that means a hunched back and the idea meaning you're piling up, gathering a load and carrying. This, this, is, this isn't like, hey, I need a fire. Oh, here's a twig. All right? Don't think like Bear Grylls out in the woods somewhere. Think like a lumberjack. It's more of the idea. 
at least in terms of what's going on. This is occupational work. While the Israelites in the desert, a man was found gathering wood on the Sabbath day. Those who found him gathering wood brought him to Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly, and they kept him in custody because it was not clear what should be done to him. Now it was clear what his fate would be, but it wasn't clear how it should be issued. In other words, the Ten Commandments, and he has broken this Ten Commandment against the Sabbath. Specifically, God said specifically in Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. You can look at these two verses later. Exodus 20, verse 8, and Exodus 34, verse 21, and Exodus 35, 1, 2, and 3. Specifically in those sections, Exodus 20, Exodus 34, God said, do not do work on the Sabbath. Do not do your occupation on the Sabbath. Don't make fire for your hearths. Don't gather wood. Don't do this. Okay? So this is not like some obscure law that Israel didn't know about. It's stated three times. And each time the penalty for it is stated as you are directly breaking the covenant and you are bringing upon yourself the death penalty if you do this. So we read this out of context and we go, who knew you couldn't do that on the Sabbath? That's so mean. God, that's not what's going on. This is God has said over and over and over, people, don't do this. Do not do this. Do not do this after this entire section where he has just shown his justice, his mercy, and his punishment, they find this. A man high-handedly, defiantly breaking one of the ten commandments that started this whole covenant thing to begin with. Going about gathering wood on the Sabbath. Why? Well, that's a great way to get some extra wood. There's nobody else out there. There's no competition. If you're gathering on the Sabbath, you can make a killing. This is an Israelite doing this. Trying to get ahead. Trying to, you know, I can gather more wood. Nobody's out there. So, this is not just accidental. You know, we picture an old man. I'm picking up a log to feed my family. Blah, blah, blah. And God says, kill him. That's not what's going on. That's not what's going on. This is, it's just told us what this is. This is an example of that continued rebellion against the covenant stipulations it's like signing a contract saying i will not do such and such and then immediately you go out and you start doing that thing and then you get mad when when the person says well i'm going to enforce the contract so that's what happens here they don't know what to do with it they they know he's going to die but they don't know how then the lord said to moses the man must die the whole assembly must stone him outside the camp where that god sent fire in the previous chapter for rebellion so the assembly took him outside the camp and stoned him to death as the Lord commanded Moses. Now again, this is not a happy verse. It's not a greeting card verse. It's, it, it's, a, it's a hard passage. Intentionally. Because it is an example of the punishment of high-handed sin. And it's not commensurate with the degree of damage that the sin did. There's, there's, not, there's no damage in gathering firewood. He wasn't punished for gathering firewood. That's the key. He was not killed because he gathered firewood. He was killed because he violated the Sabbath in order to gather firewood and did it openly, high-handedly. And so God says, this is the punishment. And you all, Israel, this generation, still the rebellious generation, you have to have a hand in carrying out this cutting off from His people. And so they do that. We'll finish the last couple of verses. We've got one, two minutes left. Then ends this chapter. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, Throughout the generations to come, you're to make tassels for the corner of your garments. Literally, you're to make 
fringes or tzitzit is the Hebrew word, it's a fun word, tzitzit, on the wings of your garment, the kanaf, the edge, the fringe, the wings is, is what it was, the word. Um, in order, or in doing so, uh, sorry, back up. Throughout the generations to come, make tassels on the cord of your garments with a blue cord on each tassel. You will have these tassels to look at, and so you will remember all the commands of the Lord, that you may obey them, and not prostitute yourselves by going after the lusts of your own hearts and eyes. Then you will remember to obey all the commands and will be consecrated to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. I am Yahweh your God. Blue tassels. The only other time is the garments for who? The priests. The priests wore garments made with blue yarn and purple and scarlet and thread. These blue tassels, this is what God has said all along from the beginning. Back in Exodus 19, when He called them out, He says, if you do My commandments, you will be for Me a kingdom of priests. This is an example of that. Israel, every Israelite is to be a priest in that sense. Now, they're not a priest that serves in the tabernacle. They're not the, the priest of Levites. But every Israelite has that residue of priesthood or that memory or that reminder of their priesthood in the blue tassel that would hang from the edge of their garment. That's what it was to be. It was way before the WWJD. That's what it was, though. It was that look at that and be reminded of Yahweh and your role as a consecrated people. And he uses that phrase because that's priest language. They are a kingdom of priests. So, we're out of time. Next week, surprise, we're going to be in Exodus, or number 16. Next week, we're back to rebellion. This is the chapter that all the uh, number of scholars go, well, this should have followed right on the previous chapter, missing everything that we've just said in terms of its significance. But yes, next week there will be ongoing rebellion because this generation is still with us and we'll go from there. So everybody have a great week and we'll see you next week.